Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This podcast is part of a partnership between TEDx St Kilda and 3CR Radio. I'm Squirrel Maine, and in this podcast, we hear an interview with TEDx speaker Danny Blay, former director of Peak Body, No to Violence, discussing masculinity. So I, I work for myself now. I, I provide private consultancies to organisations um, around uh, engaging men um, and you know project development and training. So I've worked with a number of local government areas um, and uh, other organisations that are looking to be a bit more creative in the ways in which they address the issue of gender within their organisation and what that means for maybe the clients and, and uh, other people that, that, that come into contact with them. You know, as an example, uh, you know, just having a think about how do you get your own house in order to ensure that gender equality is actually really practical. It's not just lip service, not just a policy that sits on a, on a bookshelf somewhere. But what's going on in, you know, in your meetings, you know, again, statistically, um, men are much more likely to talk over women than, than the other way around. How does that play out in the boardroom or in the team uh, in the team meetings and how can you actually be aware of it? How can you pick up on it and how can you creatively provide environments where those men start to be attuned to that a bit more and be, become a bit more respectful to allow that space and not just be talking over? The awareness is the biggest step. I certainly think that if, if men are attuned to it and kind of take a step back and observe what's going on in the room, then they can then model their own behaviour around that and not be talking over either. And, you know, certainly challenging, respectfully challenging other men in the room, saying, oh, you know, I don't think whoever it is finished her point, can you just can we just hear what she had to say? And that kind of stuff, I think, is really, really powerful for everyone in the room. Um, doing it in a very friendly and productive way, it's not about shaming anybody, but it's, I'm really interested in what she has to say. Can, can you want to just continue? That speaks volumes and it's a really important learning for everyone in the room. Um, and that kind of thinking manifests itself in a whole range of other things and other ways where people start ideally becoming a little bit more attuned to what are the women doing in this organisation, what are the men doing, and is, is the difference purely based on gender? Who's emptying the dishwasher? Yep. And what were you doing beforehand? I was the CEO of No to Violence for about 11 years. That organisation is a peak body for men's behaviour change programs in Victoria and it also provides a telephone counselling service called the Men's Referral Service that now operates in Victoria and New South Wales. Effectively an opportunity for men who are concerned about what's going on for them at home, um, concerned about their own behaviour, confused about um, you know, why it's happening and what can be done about it. They can have a, a quiet confidential chat with someone else and um, ideally get uh, provided a referral to an, uh, an agency who can work further with that, with that man. Peak body, though, not direct service provider. Did you enjoy being one step removed from the actual hands-on service? Yes and no. I, I certainly missed um, doing the, 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 the actual delivery. I was co-facilitator of a men's behaviour change program for a number of years and I kind of gave that up. You know, a year or so after I moved into management only because it was um, a bit too full, full on and there's only so many hours in the day I wanted to be talking about men and violence. I have missed the, the direct work. It's very tricky work, um, but it can be very rewarding as well um, and you know, always challenged me about my own beliefs and attitudes and finding ways to have productive uh, conversations with men 
um, and and their their female partners or former partners about um, providing some reality of what the situation is and getting men to start thinking a little differently about um, how they got themselves into a place where they were harming the people that they love the most and they wanted to spend time with. Um, so men ordinarily in those situations um, will uh, just uh, try and deny or justify what's happened and not really think that they are responsible for anything that they've done. And look, men's behaviour change programs, a more kind of accurate description of the work is um, uh, challenging standard forms of masculinity work, if you like. Anyone who does the work becomes quite clear that the vast majority of the men they're working with know how to not use violence because they don't use violence outside the home. The vast majority of men who use violence in the home are very functional, engaged, socialised men who work and volunteer and have friends and all that kind of stuff outside the home. So it's not just a matter of um, browbeating guys um, and telling them don't do this stuff, it's bad. It's more about getting them to reflect and challenge themselves about what their perceptions are of gender, of masculinity, um, what are their expectations of women, what are their expectations of relationships, and getting men to start thinking a bit more strategic about what is the impact of my behaviour and my attitude towards the other people in my world and how's that working out. And you know, one of the, one of the, the easier bits of the work, I think, is that the vast majority of men um, in those situations don't want to be doing it. They know it's not working for them. It's upsetting them. They're feeling very ashamed of it as well. But a lot of them need to explore their own beliefs and their own values to try and find a better way of relating that's going to be a lot more peaceful for them and certainly for their, their partners and their, or their former partners and their children or future partners and children. Now, I hear you saying the words, you know, challenge beliefs quite a bit. And earlier you mentioned challenging your own beliefs. Can you give an example of a time when your own beliefs were challenged? I first got into the work as a volunteer telephone counsellor with Men's Referral Service. And at that time, I was looking at a way to get back into community work. I'd worked in the media and community radio for uh, quite a while. I already had an undergraduate degree, so I couldn't pay full fees to go back and study something else. So there was an opportunity to do to be trained um, as a counsellor, um, I didn't have to pay for it, which is the model that the service uses. I'm um, to pay back to get the qualification. You volunteer your your, your efforts to on the phones. You know, it was the most profound thing I've done in in kind of my my work or in my experiential life, if you like, coming to uh, understand the dynamics and the impact and the per- pervasiveness of men's aggression and men's violence and men's use of power and control over over their partners. You know, it's it, it's a very difficult place to put yourself because you start challenging what you often think is just normal, what's natural about relationships. And so you start thinking about the women in your life and the girls you went to school with and uh, you know, your family members. And um, that can be very difficult even for for friends who have particular attitudes and behaviours that you start thinking, maybe that's actually not quite right. Maybe that's not natural. Maybe that's actually damaging. And a lot of men in our work, even on the periphery guys who aren't being trained as counsellors or behaviour change workers, but are just interested in being a bit more active in the space, often report that a lot of their social relationships suffer because they start making choices about whether am I I going to engage with those people or not? Am I going to engage in those activities or not? Did you find yourself doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, there's... uh, people I had to choose to not associate with anymore because I couldn't abide by their values and the way they would speak about women, you know, some of the activities, you know, 
guys I know still today who think it's quite appropriate for a stripper to be at a, at a Bucks party and think it's just okay, it's natural, it doesn't matter, there's, there's, there's no impact there. And, you know, when you dwell on it and you pull it apart and look at the context of it, you see that there is a big impact there about how you're valuing women and what your expectations are of women. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of those kinds of things that I've had to pull back from and, and not engage with anymore and be very selective about it. Is it hard? Look, it's, it's a little isolating at first, I think, um, but the benefits of it are massive. I have, I have two children and the way in which my partner and I parent our children, the way we converse with them and the values that, the, that our children have now, I think is somewhat of a product of me being able to give them space to express themselves in a way and question things in a way that I didn't have as, as a kid and my peers certainly didn't have when, when we were at school. You know, the benefits of them becoming, you know, young adults who are critiquing the world that they see and critiquing the relationships and the ways in which people are behaving at school and on the street and wherever they, they socialise has, has been really, really value, valuable and I can see that it looks like that they're going to be able to form relationships that are going to be based on on empathy and trust and and respect that uh, a lot of the time young people I think don't even think about it's not on the radar it's hard you you know I'm constantly quite vigilant of what kind of social media I engage with or or you know culture and sometimes you have to draw a line and sometimes you pretend the line's not there yeah it's tricky i remember a few years ago i'm a big james brown fan I saw James Brown here in uh, the mid-80s and it changed my life and that was unbelievable. And then he came out again and I was very excited and I bought tickets for, for us and a few friends and a week after I got the tickets, uh, there was his ugly mugshot on all the newspapers and you know, he, he got done for beating up his wife. And I thought, can I go to the show? What do I do? And I actually rang a former radio colleague of mine um, who's a much bigger music fan than me and he said, look... I want you to go to your, what he knew was my reasonably substantial vinyl collection and CD collection. I want you to remove every bastard that's there, every, especially every bloke that you know. Get rid of your John Lennons, get rid of every, all, you know, all the guys you know have been bad. When you're left with Peter, Paul and Mary, you can then engage with your music fandom. I thought, I, I can't, you know, how far do you go in isolating yourself from all that stuff and can you separate that out? You know, and I think I was validated because the show was crap, so he got my money, but, you know, he's, uh, he, I have a different opinion of him now. It's funny what you're saying. It's so pervasive. Where do you draw the line and, and where do you draw that economic line? Now, you mentioned you've got your laptop sitting in front of you mm. for uh, statistics. <laughs> I do love statistics. What's out there right now? What's out there now? Look, there's, there's a range of things that point to concern about the ways in which boys and men are interacting in the world that we often don't hear about. So in the family violence context, um, for example, Victoria Police uh, responded to over 68,000 reports of family violence just last year. Thousand. Yeah, 68,000. Um, which obviously is a lot, but it's only scratching the surface. Um, international research tells us that around about one in three women experience violence. Two hundred a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. One in, one in three women. One in three women will experience violence. So people mm. often will think, oh, well, that's that's happening in, um, you know, India right now yeah. or something like that. But 
do we have any Australian figures? Well, look, they're pretty much the same. They're pretty much the same. Um, what we do know is um, people from lower socioeconomic um, environments are more exposed if violence is an issue. So in terms of how they live and where they live and the, so- the services that they need to engage with um, to maintain their lifestyles. Family violence exists in the leafy suburbs of Melbourne and everywhere else as well, but it's a lot more secluded. There are a lot more ways in which those people can not be exposed. But it certainly does exist that, you know, there are, there are things like drugs and alcohol that can exacerbate or disinhibit some men from using violence, but underneath all of that is some substantial violence supportive attitudes. I do remember the first time I came across, or I was, when I was taught, when I was being trained, the one in three women experience violence in a relationship, sometime in their relationship. You immediately reflect on one in three women that you know. And, you know, I've said that stat, uh, you know, a thousand times in public presentations and training or whatever. And statistically, one in three women in the room have experienced violence, and that's profound. And it's complicated. It's not overt. It's not necessarily overt. It's not just physical violence. There's a whole range of different forms of of power and control that can be used in relationships that um, a lot of the men, if if not most of those men, will not see as a problem. Um, and a lot of women will struggle with in wondering. Uh, who's responsible um, and you know the, the hardest conversations I had as a telephone counsellor or even um, working with partners of, of men in programs was when women say can you just tell me what I'm doing wrong to, that makes him do this or even you know I wish he'd just hit me and get it over and done with because all the other behaviours around the belittling and the control of money and controlling of, of uh, who she associates with is is so debilitating that so many women uh, will not be sure about their experience and might even be blaming themselves and you know women's organisations uh, certainly in Victoria for many many years have done a lot of work in, in validating the experience and providing clear messages that it's not your responsibility. It's not your fault. It's not what you do. It's his responsibility and he's the one who has to do some stuff to change. And the priority of all of those kinds of things and all those interactions is the safety of women and children. So, you know, men's behaviour change work and counselling and all those kinds of things isn't a panacea that's going to get people back together and live happily ever after. Some of the hard work in behaviour change programs is when a man's been there for a few weeks and his partner's now felt safe enough to leave because she's been hooked up with agencies where they've talked about you know, her safety and the safety of her children and what's her long-term plans and how does she want to live. And so men can kind of be on a trajectory of feeling quite good about themselves, of understanding more about gender and about power and about choice and those kinds of things, but then she leaves and they and the men say, well, what's the point? Why, why should I be even continuing doing this stuff? And so keeping hold of those guys and saying, look, um, even if this relationship has ended, there will pro- most likely be another relationship. And most most of those men have children. And what kind of dad do you want to be? What kind of man do you want to be for your kids? And what's the legacy you're going to leave them? Are they going to? How do they think about you now? And how are they going to think about you in the future? Um, so keeping that kind of motivation up, the big picture stuff. There's you know, great work, some really good work that happens in behaviour change programs is um, loosely termed the man you want to be. And asking groups of men, describe the man you are now and writing that stuff up on a whiteboard and then asking them what's the man you want to be. And invariably the descriptions are 
diametrically opposed. The men will talk about, I can sometimes be aggressive and stubborn and um, have entrenched views and um, I can sometimes uh, lose my temper. They're the words that they use and sometimes get angry and all those kinds of things. But when you ask them the man you want to be, they want to be genuinely respected, not just demanding respect. They want to be calm. They want to be peaceful. They want to have a respectful relationship with the people they're around, not just demanding that they relate to them. And you ask them, so how, how did you turn out to be the guy you are now and how are you actually going to become the man you want to be? What are the choices that you have to make um, to be the man you want to be? And that can be, that's very, very challenging and sometimes quite distressing distressing for a lot of men when they've, you know, they reflect on their past 10, 20, 30, 40 years or whatever it might be, their existence, and they have to throw all that up in the air and try and rebuild it in a way where they're not going to be hurting people. And is this, when you're talking about the man you want to be, do you see yourself right now as, as being, as living that man you want to be? Or is this just a challenge that absolutely everybody, not just perpetrators of violence, are faced with? I challenge myself hourly. I find myself being quite careful about the way in which I refer to people, um, about how gendered is my way of being, how gendered is the way in which I'm interacting with my daughter or my son. Um, Can you give an example? Basic things like how do you expect your son or your daughter to dress? How do you expect them to play? Uh, What kind of uh, toys or activities do they do? I remember uh, when my daughter was very, very young, I found myself digging a hole in the backyard for some reason, planting something or something, I don't know. And I was digging the hole and I could see through the back door my partner was folding washing. And I thought, that's how, how did that happen? It was just, you know, this non-spoken assumption that I go and do the stuff out the back. So I went inside and I asked my partner, do you, do you want to swap? And, you know, we had a very, we had a baby. And she looked at the shovel and she went, no, no, I don't. <laughs> it's fine, really. But... Um, from, you know, that kind of modelling for my children, I think, has been really important. Um, so I make an effort to ensure that I'm doing an equal amount of the domestic stuff at home. Uh, when it ta- comes to taking a child to dance class or whatever it might be, that's not just that's not mum's work, um, just because that's a girly thing to do. And not putting any undue pressure on my son to be sportive and active and, and you know, the kind of stereotypical boy stuff. And, you know, the languages that we use to, to refer to people, um, the, uh, the ways in which we perceive how people people are engaged within your environment um, and how you model that stuff. You know, the men in my family, my my partner's family and, you know, a generation up as well are now very clear that if there's a a big uh, do at our place, a family do, that it won't be acceptable that the women are in the kitchen and the guys are outside having a beer. That's, That's not on. And, you know, sometimes going back to where that comes, becomes slightly difficult in social relationships when some of the men will say, oh, we better get up because Danny's going to get annoyed. It's not about me getting annoyed. This is about, you know, ethical behaviour and engagement and breaking down some of those barriers where the assumptions are that the women are there to serve men. And they all get up eventually, though? Oh, absolutely. Again, it's. I think that stuff is important for the young people that are around as well, that they might not be seeing that stuff in their other environments. And certainly their you know, school environments and other social environments are very, very gendered. I remember when my kids were still at primary school, I happened to be at the school around lunchtime, and I noticed quite obviously that the vast majority of the open space was being used by boys playing soccer and football and cricket and whatever. And there were some girls there, but mostly the girls were either on the monkey bars on the periphery or they were playing passive games. 
And, you know, I thought there's, there's an issue there where, where something has, there's a structure there that is endorsed, if not celebrated, um, that's not providing equal opportunities for the girls to engage. So I raised it with the principal. And I said, uh, look, you know, I just I think there's there's an issue here that, for example, my daughter doesn't seem to have the same opportunity to play sports in the on the field as as my son does. His response was, "What you want me to ban footy?" And I said, no, "No, I don't want you to ban footy, but maybe there's something that we can have a think about in terms of how gender equality can be enacted in a really practical way to ensure that girls have the same opportunities." And the message is there that they can do what they as much as what the boys do and by the same token boys aren't pressured to engage in standard boy stuff and they can play passive games and and have conversations that's not involved with balls and running around and getting hot and sweaty which is a, an equally valid way of existing if that's what floats your boat to this day i don't think that there's a lot of permission around that and it's not facilitated because it's not on the radar it's not seen it's it's just interpreted as, as natural and normal and it's not, it's manufactured. It's the overall curriculum of life. that It's just getting overlooked. Yeah, and, and you know, there's, there's, there's quite good research around that boys get more attention in class time than girls do. There's good research around boys um, getting more attention and being encouraged to be or allowed to be more active and if not more vocal at home compared to their sisters. That stuff is really important learning in terms of our socialisation and what, what it allows us, gives us permission to do. And it teaches girls that maybe they need to be submissive just to fit in. So that's what girls are supposed to do. They have to, you know, you know, the extreme version is being pink and fairy and all that kind of stuff, but that still happens and it's often just seen as normal, but it's not, it's confected. Well, thank you. You've just been listening to Danny Blay, former director of Peak Body, No to Violence. Danny was a speaker who took part in the 2015 TEDx St. Kilda Talks. You can hear Danny's TED Talk, as well as the talks of other great speakers at TEDxStKilda.com. This interview originally aired on 3CR Radio on the 10th of June, 2015, and is part of a partnership between 3CR and TEDx St Kilda. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.